1: Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations prepared to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to a Cross Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine.
0: Welcome to my show, Money Making Conversation Masterclass. I am your host, Rashawn McDonald. I recognize that we all have different definitions of success for you. It may be the size of your paycheck. Mine is inspire people to develop a plan to reach their dreams. It is time to stop reading other people's success stories and start writing your own. You can only exceed expectations by believing in yourself. Understand that when I say that, because people always talk about their purpose or gifts. You read that all the time. I hear about it all the time, especially in social media. If you have a gift, listen to me. Lead with your gift, and don't let your friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dreams. My guest is Yatse Coronaldi. Emma yatze can currently be seen on the as a powerful attorney. I've seen this series i'm I'm in love with it. I can't wait to start talking to her because the character is really edgy, smart, and um little street in her too um. Uh, <laughs> Attorney Stewart on Hulu's *Reasonable Doubt*. She's next star of my boy Michael Ely. We'll talk about that relationship when the interview starts, too. Produced by and directed the pilot episode by Kerry Washington and also my man Larry Mill Wilmore. So she got a lot of names in this series. I'm very familiar with. She plays the character Jax, a prosecutor who is also a wife and mother who is balancing marriage, kids, and a murder trial. I want to ask about that marriage because I, I don't know if they, I don't know what she's balancing there. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations. Masterclass, the incredible star of Reasonable Doubt, now airing on Hulu, Emiyatsi Kornaldi. How you doing?
3: Hello, I'm doing great. How are you, Rashad?
0: Well, first of all, you know when I, when I see a face like it because I'm am I'm a TV person, a TV person. Okay. And uh, and as we go through this business, you know you you have scenes here and there, and so I started watching. I got an early preview of the series. They sent me a link, and I'm watching. it going, she looks so familiar. She looks so familiar. <laughs> and and so so I go back to the bio, and it says ballers. You know, as starring opposite Dwayne Johnson. So you uh, were that uh, representative for the NFL like Players Association and ballers, correct? Correct. Now, when you, when you get a role like that, because there's a, you know, because you work with Miles Davis, my man, David Oyelowo, you know, so you work with a lot of individuals who command, you know, screen attention, but you have to make your place on the screen as well, not so much, not using the word it, being intimidated, how do you prepare for these relationships, these on-screen relationships with actors of that magnitude? Um,
3: well, I think the, the best way that I've learned to prepare is just by being prepared, doing my best work, um, doing all the work that I can leading up to, you know, the first day of filming, because that gives you a sense of, of freedom, you know, right. being able to relax and being confident and knowing that I've done my my part up to this point. And then once you get on set, you know, it's time to play. You know, I'm, I'm you know, at my best, my co-stars at their best. And then it's just. That's where all the fun happens, you know. And so I think it's the preparation is what allows you to have the confidence to just be.
0: Now, preparation is, is key. I, I'll be honest yes. with you, Emma I cannot act. You know, I started out my career, <laughs> my degrees in mathematics. I, I, I left IBM to pursue a career as a stand-up comedian. Um, so I thought I was going to be the next Eddie Murphy. Definitely was going to be the next Richard Pryor. And so, I, <laughs> you know, I found my niche behind the screen, you know. And so, so Go. you know, I produce talent. Steve Harvey, one of my clients, you know, Stephen mm-hmm. A. Smith, one of my clients. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of other clients that I have on the roster. But that, that's where I was at. And then you see a talent like a Kerry Washington who's directing the pilot. And we know what she can do in front of the camera. Absolutely. What When you see that, is it is it preparing you for a next move, maybe for you to be a producer or a director or... What do you do when you see what Kerry Washington is doing?
3: Well, it's definitely inspirational, you know, to see what Kerry has done with her career and how she navigates her career, you know, and to see her now um, fledgling out into different things like producing and and directing. um, It's very inspiring and encouraging and, and surely is something that I would be interested in doing at some point. Um, because it's great to see someone like Carrie who is taking charge of of her career and who wants to just do things um, in a different space outside of just acting. She wants to, you know, put her hands in other things and I think it's fantastic.
0: I I heard the word taking charge, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always, that that was one of the reasons why I stopped acting, why I stopped doing stand-up. I always felt I was auditioning and, you know, I go in and I I thought I killed the audition and then they come back Mm and go, well, they went with somebody else, which is really depressing. It's really depressing. Impressive. But I always felt that when I went behind the camera, I felt I had a little bit more control. I felt I had well, I, what's your thoughts.
3: I, I just saying, but but let me say this though, because I think that even as an actor, you still have control. There is still a sense of being in charge. It's all about the power of no. That's what I've learned in my career. You know, actors can sometimes think that you just have to take every role. You have to take every audition, but you don't, you do not. You can navigate and create the kind of a career that you want to have and know that you do have the power. You are in charge. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you, have to, you know, go and be a producer or a writer to, to be in charge of your career as an actor. It's knowing that you have your own agency to make your own choices. And I find that that's the one thing that I realized, um, a lot of actors starting out, they think that, well, I have to do this audition. I have to do what my agent says, but you're paying them. You're (laughs) paying them to get you the kind of roles that you want. These, Mm -hmm. everyone is working on your team so that you can be the best that you can be. And so I think once we as actors really realize that, that's where the power comes in. That's where the agency comes in for you to create the kind of career that you want rather than sitting around and just waiting for things to fall in your lap. And then the next thing you know, you've looked up and you've got this career that's not really what you wanted. Mm And so there's there's a way to navigate and it's by having control.
0: Well, let's go back a little bit before we really get into reasonable doubt because of the fact that I I see a polished actress, I see a confident actress on reasonable doubt, and I see an aged actress. What did the... You're coming out of high school. Was it? Did you did you college? Talk about some of the steps that encourage you to realize that this not only was a dream, but possibly mm-hmm. can become a career.
3: Well, you know, it's it's funny. There's a reason why this is full circle for me in okay. terms of um, playing the character of Jacks on Reasonable Doubt, is because she's this powerful defense attorney, and I always thought I wanted to be an attorney when <laughs> I first, you know, when I was a, as a kid. And what do I want to do? I think I want to be a lawyer. Um, And so that was my dream, you know, all the way up through high school and, you know, now preparing for college. And thankfully, I realized um, early, oh, no, you don't want to be a lawyer. You just want to play the lawyer. I realized I liked the power and the strength in the courtroom. I liked the bad suits. I liked all of that, Absolutely. but I liked nothing about <laughs> the study of law, you know, <laughs> so before wasting all my money doing that, but it was it was a real dream. It was my girlfriend and I, and we had already decided our firm was going to be Cornaldi and Sweeney Incorporated, <laughs> and um, I realized, okay, you know what? Her name was Tony. Tony. I think I just want to be an actress, and she went on to become an attorney, so we both found our, our space. Um, but that was a pivotal moment for me because I really realized, oh, you like the drama of being an attorney of being in that courtroom, you know? And by that time I'd already always, um, Uh, done a lot of, you know, theater and summer theater and was plays, all that kind of stuff. But I didn't know at that moment that I wanted to be an actor um, just yet. So it all kind of came together once I made that realization in high school. And then from there, it was just full throttle, full throttle, just figuring it out from there, you know, hitting the pavement, all kinds of, you know, classes and auditions and everything. And, and, And that was it.
4: We'll be right back with more Money-Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashaun McDonald. Now let's return to Money-Making Conversations Masterclass. With Rashawn McDonald.
0: I'm originally from Houston, Texas. So I moved okay. to New York, pursuing my stand-up comedy career. Then I moved to L.A., pursuing my career. And I did get levels of success that I'm very proud mm-hmm. to uh, put on my resume today. But yes. again, it's still, you know, it's that community that you have to get with and people, the hustle, you know, people telling you about this audition, taking these classes, to keep mm-hmm. improving your chops. When did you, when, you know, this is what we want to do, Yate, I mean, but when you realize I could actually do it.
3: Uh, That's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of when would that moment have hit me when I realized, okay, you know what? You can, you can do this. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Nothing's sticking out in my head, but I do think there was um, a project that came and there was a moment where I had a disagreement with the the director. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I brought up my point of view to the director and, you know, he, he listened to what have you, um, but he didn't think that it was quite the right, the right choice. Right. Um, but then later on, he realized it was the right choice. And I mean, later on, you know, that day we finished, finished filming and he came to me and he said, you were absolutely correct. And I thank you for coming to me. And I even told him, that gave me so much confidence because it let me know that I can trust my instincts, um, that I do have the courage to you know stand up for what I think is right. Right. You know, opposite someone who has all of this this um experience and everything. Um. So it gave me a, a lot of courage, and I think that would would be a moment where I realized you know what well, you can do this, you can. You know, I'm
0: glad you answered that honestly, because I tell people all the time, especially on this show, whether it's listening on podcasts or watching the the video on YouTube or streaming somewhere, is that that's the moment that we all have in life, you know, where we have a fear, you know, whether changing jobs or, you know, because you can say that. And and other people on the set or actresses or actresses will look at you going, "Mm, she tripping. OK, she yeah. needs to chill. She really needs to chill. She's not going to be yeah. working no more because that's the fear of what can happen in any job, really. You know, right. when, you, when you when you share your opinion, especially yes. when they said that this is how you want to go. I remember when I was working mm-hmm. at IBM when I realized that at IBM, I said, when I realized that this is how they wanted to do IBM, they didn't want any extra new ideas. I went, that's not my job. Yeah. I, I, I got to go. And so you live in a space where you can't be creative. And, I, and I, I, I talk about your journey because you know now, being the star of a series, Reasonable Doubt, there is another level of responsibility to come to that. So let's yes. go to the part Thank where you. they said, you are the one that screams, oh my God, I got this, I got got Talk about the audition process and how many times you went in. Did you put it on tape when you sit in? How did it, how did you get this opportunity to be the star of Reasonable Doubt, which is now yeah. airing on Hulu?
3: Um. Well, you know, it's that is <laughs> it's just another story because um, when it came to me, I was already ready to do another project. It was signed, got it and then, like that, huh? Got it like that, huh? And delivered. In my opinion, you know, Mm -hmm. I was, this was it. This is what I was doing. I'd already had a yes, was ready to sign And that was that. And then my team brought this and said, you should take a look at this. And I told them, no, I don't need to take a look at this. This is what I'm doing. I'm fine with this. And that is it. But they were persistent. And I think maybe about two weeks or so went by and they said, you need to read this. We like this too, but we think that this is really the one. Um, But I was going to have to fight for this one. And I just didn't know if I wanted to fight for it. I had this one that was great. I'm going to do that. Um, But once I read it, that just changed everything. I saw what they saw. um, And I said, well, Emmy, you're going to have to just pull it out of you right now and do it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I didn't feel like I had it in that moment. I was in a space where, you know, the other opportunity I had was great. And, you know, there was no need to have to go and fight for something else and but um, once it became clear that that's what I was going to have to do, that was it. That was it. You know, so I went in. This is obviously during pandemic still. So everything is Zoom. Um, and so I um, had an initial meeting with, um, with, with the team, with Carrie and everyone. Um, and then I did the, the first audition um, on tape. And um, in the middle of the audition, my camera went out phone <laughs> went out and I just said, you know what, that's it. You, you just messed up the whole thing. You should have just did the other one, you know, um, and you know, by the time it did come back on eventually and, you know, I finished, finished it. And after I finished, I felt, you know, I mean, I think you, I think you, you got that. I don't know. I mean, I know the camera went out, you know, I'm having this whole internal monologue, but I felt like I, like I had it, you know, and I went to my, to my prayer closet as I tend to do, you know, and just kind of left it there. And then I find out I, I don't remember maybe a few days after that, and um, Carrie and everyone called me, and I didn't know that's why they were calling me. I thought they were just calling me, you know. And and uh, they did a FaceTime video, and that's when they told me I got the part. And then, not to mention, I find out later from Ramla, you know, when your video went out, we already knew you had the part by that time. You know. And I, <laughs> that's, Yet another lesson. You know what I mean? Just just trust the process. Trust what you what you're doing, um. because she said, yeah, we were all convinced. That was it. You didn't even need to come back on the screen. <laughs> um. So that was that was it. That was the process. The next thing I know, we're gearing up to start filming.
0: OK, now, this, we, we know a little history about Emma Yates. You know, mm-hmm. she didn't want to be a lawyer. She always be able, wanted to be a lawyer on TV. Okay. Wanna had a law firm <laughs> all picked out, but guess what? Yes. She was, she had, law firm is picked out on TV. Um, this character, you said you said you saw it. I gotta be I this is a character, yes. I gotta, I gotta push myself. Talk, tell us about this character, Emma Yahti, that you play as the attorney attorney jacks, as short for another there's a nickname, that's why it's called J A X on this yes. show. And why you went, I gotta be attorney Stewart
3: man, for the same reasons that all of you who've seen the show, when you watch the pilot, that's what I felt when I, when I read it, it was just so exciting. Um, it was, it had a kinetic energy to it that I hadn't felt in a long time. Right. And this lead character, Jax, I hadn't seen a woman like her in this way mm-hmm. on TV. You know, we've, Thankfully, we've had a lot of strong black women on TV, you know, especially the, the number one being, you know, um, uh, Carrie with Olivia Pope or what mm-hmm. have you. We've had quite a few. Um, but Jax is very different. Jax stands in a league of her own. and She's very different um, from the others that we've had. And I, that's attributed to Ramla and the way that she's crafted this this story and this world around Jax. You know, we get to see her interpersonal life in a way that we don't often get to see with black women, especially professional black women, who are supposed to be just polished and put together and, you know, you don't have time for um, any of the, any of the mess, any rough ends. And we get to see all of her, you know, rough edges and all of the the mess and coming apart at the seams. And that is what I love the most about Jax, because that's, that's life. You know, those are the women that I know who are trying to juggle a marriage, a career, a family, you know, um, dynamics with, with your parents, you know, girlfriends, all of the things and maybe not holding all the balls up in the air at the same time, you know, because mm-hmm. that's part of the burden of uh, being a woman. And part of the burden of being a black woman, for sure, mm-hmm. is that we have to keep all the balls up in the air. Um, and so we get to see Jack try to figure out what happens when a few of them start to fall.
0: There's three friends of mine that you remind me of because of their life, you know, okay. high profile attorneys. Mm-hmm. I, know they, I know their culture is surrounded by white men, you know, want to be partners or or, Mm -hmm. or, or partners at these law firms. But the part that really separates is that this is a very uh, sexually aware character of who she is. And I think that's that's what really separates it from a lot of other characters that you've seen, white or black, on TV, is that Mm -hmm. this character is willing to go there and when that was part of the script, what ran through your mind? I'm not saying anything salacious to anybody, but she knows what I'm talking about. This is a character that understands she's beautiful, understands what she wants. Sometimes she may demand what she wants, and, right. it, and she'll be frustrated if she doesn't get what she wants and let it be known. But more importantly, that's what successful people do. But usually, that's a man that's doing it. In your case, you're a woman. Right. Did, did that play out in your mind like that?
3: Well, yes, you know, because just being a woman, especially, again, a black woman on TV, we don't get to live in, in that kind of space. Right. You know, it generally is, you know, the the white actresses um, who get to have all of the mess and everything going on and, you know, sexually free and what you right. without any judgment. And at times um, there's judgment that can be attached, you know. And so with this, they're just there's such a, um, relatability to, to Jax, you know, um, that a lot of women have said that they, that they feel, you know, Mm -hmm. about her in her, um, in her freedom of being, you know, very aware of her sexuality or what have you, you know, and that's what is most exciting to me because women are connecting to that very thing. And that is the very thing when I read the script, I said, Oh my God, you know, right. (laughs) Because I'm not necessarily as you know free as that, um, but that's what I, I look forward to, to 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 playing with, you know, because that is life. Right. You know what I mean? And we mm-hmm. find ourselves in these situations and and what are you going to do? And so it's fun to see how, how Jax navigates right. the world.
0: Well, I love what she said. Hey, Emma Yotsi said, hey, look, I, I'm free, but I ain't this free. I'm not just free. Don't <laughs> <by> <laughs> be stopping in the streets. This is a character. I play on TV now. Don't be messing right. with me now. Right. Let's
3: be clear. Let's be clear. This is a character.
0: <laughs> Jack Stewart is a character. Okay. Emma Yotsi, I hey. I got, I got, I got, I play a different card, a different card, And that's what I love about the character. I love about the fact that you know there, there's a lot of mystery with the men in your life too mm-hmm. okay you know your husband I really don't understand him I really don't get him and then <laughs> Michael Ely. Mm-hmm. I really don't understand him either. I when you're in the and, and when you're in the boardroom with the white men, they 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 they, they might be nervous. They, there's a little edge to you, you know. Mm-hmm. So so if you can, if you can just kind of wrap me up. First of all, let's start with your husband. Not trying to give away much of this, the plot line right. at all, but. There is an interesting relationship with there. We use the word marriage in here, but it's not really a marriage in the story. And then Ely, who's introduced basically in the latter half of the pilot, there's something dynamic there. And he's he wants to leave jail. And then the men that you work with and then, uh, uh-huh. you know, it, it's really I, I, I'm going to just tell you something. Your skill level is fantastic. You oh, exude you. a natural confidence and sexuality that is not offensive, but you, we know it's there. We know you're beautiful. Uh-huh. We know you, you know you you stretch your stuff, why you have the ability to do it, but it has nothing to do with I can be me. But it does impact your your husband, it does impact mm-hmm. your job and also Michael Ely and his decision making. Let's start with your husband.
3: Well, you know, I I would have to disagree with you when you say, you know, that it's it's not a marriage. It is a marriage. And I think it represents um, a lot of the marriages right now, you know, where you just don't even know anymore what's right. wrong but something is wrong you can't quite put your finger on right. it it's been so many things building up and it's just you you don't even know anymore um and that's kind of what what Jackson Lewis are going through right now you know and and when the show starts they are separated um and they're trying to figure out do they have something to get back to but in the midst of that they don't even know they don't know, you know, and that's what I love about the representation of their marriages because I think it's very realistic, you know, because you just don't you're, you're you aren't quite always able to put your finger on the thing. It's not just, you know, you didn't squeeze the toothpaste up. You didn't put the toilet <laughs> down. You know, it's, a, it's a series of things that have now gotten you to this point to where, you know, you're thinking about throwing it all away. way. Um, and I do think that Jax is. Um, her confidence, you know, um, <laughs> the very things that make her the, the woman that she is in her career can kind of cause a bit of friction in her marriage, you know, because she's she can just steamroll and go, you know, straight ahead and not realize that she may be hurting people in the process. Um and I think, as it pertains to, to to Damon, you know, that's a relationship where you know, professionally, um, they have this this history. You know, and you start to see over the course of the show um, a lot of different things come out that are informing um, who they are and where they are now. Um, so I'm just going to leave the Damon one right there. <laughs>
0: I, 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 uh, I, I'm going to tell you something. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my fans. I'm telling fans. Listen to me now. When you watch Reasonable Doubt, starring Emmy Yachty Carnaldi, it's on Hulu. You're going to see the pilot probably when it's aired. The second episode would probably have aired. Um,
3: we're, we're four, uh, four episodes four, in four, now.
0: Yep, yep. I apologize. That's right. That's correct. And uh, I just I just saw that they just sent them all to me. And so okay. uh, and I'm just watching them. So I don't know when they're aired or not. But it's on, currently on Hulu right now streaming. Now, the marriage... I want you to tell me what y'all think of that marriage, okay? <laughs> I want y'all tell. I want y'all to tell tell Emma Yate on her on her social media what y'all think of that marriage. Yes. Is it, is it yes. a traditional marriage? Is it a typical marriage? Like she just exposed to us on our show? Rishon says, "Hmm, maybe." <laughs> but more Listen. importantly, you, my friend. Uh, or, or a star Let me go on, Let me go Give you your flowers oh, Okay Give you yeah. your flowers I, I can't take my eyes Off of you on screen That's a positive uh, I don't know Who you are And that's a mystery To the character When I say that, that's a good thing Because I don't know Where you're going sometimes You know mm-hmm. I feel mm-hmm. that your character Exudes confidence And can intimidate Which is what The character's supposed to do when you're mm-hmm. in certain environments and they don't want to talk to you while you're there and you and feel compromised because women have been talked in a certain way in the boys' club. not they have right. a powerful female in the room and they don't want to always talk like they want to talk. In the boys' club. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing is changing television in a good way. And uh, I, I can all I can say is, uh, the, being the star of Reasonable Doubt, uh, working with a good friend of mine, Michael Ealy, uh, directed and produced by uh, Kerry Washington and Larry Wilmore, you're surrounded by talented people who have a history Absolutely. of uh, creative success. And you're just a shining light for the next level of stars, uh, not only with your skin tone, not only with your, your talent, but not only with the ability <laughs> to be able to communicate Do not stop and keep growing your brand. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate more that I can get to watch you on streaming on Hulu. She said my name correctly. I said her name correctly. So this is great. <laughs> I, I think we won on this show, right?
3: Listen, we really did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so again, on Hulu, Reasonable Doubt starred Emma Carnaldi and my boy Michael Ealy is coming in. He's coming in strong. He's coming in strong because I work with him. He did my two of my movies, Thinking Like a Man, Thinking Like a Man Too. Uh-huh. That's our history. So y'all, you keep winning. We'll talk soon, okay? keep being a star.
4: Bye. Thank you. And
0: thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation Masterclass.
4: We'll be right back with more Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. You are now tuned into the Money-Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald.
0: Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money-Making Conversation Masterclass with your daily Minute of Inspiration. This week, I sat down with comedian, actress, host, producer, and author, Kim Whitley. She explains why it is important to make sure you feel good inside and out. I, I'm a firm, I'm a really, really firm believer in how you feel on the inside will come out on
1: the outside.
0: A lot of water is what they really make you drink. Yes. Um, you stay hydrated, your skin's going to look good. Being happy on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it comes out because people are always like, you're always so happy. I really try to maintain that uh, because I like to be an inspiration to so many people. And when I look good and feel good, then I'm even happier. You right. know, it's it's an up and down thing. You, you know, even if I lost 30 pounds, you know, I might've gained some back uh, right now. And now it, it's just, I get back on the journey. I mean, I never stop. Listen to this full interview with Kim Whitley. It's available on Conversation.com.
4: Now let's return to Money-Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashaun McDonald.
0: My guest is Steve Phillips. He is a New York Times bestselling author, columnist, and leading national political thought leader. And that's why he's on the show. He's the author of New York Times and Washington Post bestselling Brown is the New White, How the Demographics Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He is on the show to discuss his new book, How We Win the Civil War. How we win the Civil War. Does that sound timely? I think so. The book is available for purchase and storage right now and online. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations Masterclass, the one and only Steve Phillips. How you doing, Steve?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me on.
0: Glad to be here. Cool. Where are you based at, Steve? It's San Francisco, California. Okay, you're a West Coast guy. When I when you when you hear West Coast, you hear, you know, liberalism, you know, they they very uh wanna to, wanna to protect the earth. You know, the electric car came out of there, you know, know, uh, uh, the right of the woman woman has the right, you know, abortions and all these things are, are favorably received in that part of the country. I'm in the South. I'm born and raised in Houston, Texas. I now live in Georgia. I just want to give you that perspective because you're living in that environment. I'm living in this environment. So I'm really being inundated by two different messages. So I think that's really going to help our conversation because I want to talk to you because in your book, I feel that uh, it's necessary. The message you're trying to say is that there's a denial being happened out th- that's happening out there because there is a... Um, uh,
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.
0: White majority out there that really wants to keep status quo, no matter what, and they may and they showed it January 6th, that violence is an option and they will use it. When you wrote
2: this book, what is your perspective? Yeah, very much so, and and just to, to, so I don't uh, fully get distorted in terms of my I live in San Francisco and no, I've been out here since I went to college. I didn't fully realize I was reading the Stanford shirt, but I'm, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio originally. My grandfather was a minister at Glenville Church of God there. I, my nephew and his family live in Houston, and one of the states that we feature is uh, Georgia in the book. Yes, you do. Yes. And so uh, fundamentally, I wrote the book for two reasons. One is I wanted to try to explain what is going on in U.S. politics at this point in time in this country and to have people understand the intensity and the ferocity of the, the opposition. Uh, and that there really are people, and, and the title, How We Win the Civil War, is I show try to show that the Confederates have never stopped fighting the actual Civil War, and, and, and uh, they have not stopped the efforts to try to make this fundamentally a white country, And that that battle about whether we're going to be a white country or a multiracial democracy continues to rage. It continues to rage most intensely in the South, because that is where Uh, people, that is where slavery took place. That's where the majority of people of color, both African-Americans and uh, uh, Latinos and large numbers of Asians are. But it's also because of that, those are the areas that also offer the most promise in terms of really being able to change this country and being able to make the kind of uh, a society that we say that we want to have. And it is places exactly like Harris County It's places like Georgia, Wells, Arizona, and Virginia, that are on the cutting edge of this fight to make the country finally the multiracial democracy that uh, it professes to be. Well, Steve, I didn't want to
0: like to say that 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 was your you were born and raised in California. I apologize if that was necessary no, no, no delivered. Worries. I I'm just trying to set this conversation tone for right now, present, because mm-hmm. it allows us to have a perspective of what's going on, right. you know, in California and what's going on in Georgia, which is featured exactly. in the book. And I happen to be Front and center, you know, at, at at the time this uh this interview is happening, you know, early election is starting for the mm-hmm. Brian Kemp and the uh, which is Stacey Abrams and then the Herschel Walker and uh, uh, Raphael Warnock for the Senate seat. Two highly contested things that are going on that really can change the face of politics in this country on this state it's also how it may happen in other states. Philadelphia is one of them and the other states out there as well. Texas is a central, it's a totally different animal. And I I live there. My daughter went to school there. I graduated from there. That's a whole different conversation. Now, when you talk about your perspective, what's going on in California when you when you sit down, and you see politics as they're being played out in California?
2: Well, it's interesting because it's an, an both on both on levels. And so on one level, California has been a breakthrough. And in my yes, previous sir. book, yes. Round is the New White, I talk about how California is an example of what is possible going from a state that was a formerly uh, very conservative, the, the political birthplace of Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, and had been the one of the bastions of um, you know, frankly, pro-white politics within this country. Reagan got elected in the governor in 1966 by running on a platform of law and order in response to the urban rebellions in places like Watts. And so that, but California has now gone through its own demographic revolution. There was, there was actually a book uh, by the author Jewel Taylor Gibbs called Preserving Privilege, where she talks about the early 90s in California when there was anti bilingual education, anti-immigration and anti um, uh, three strikes, this uh, legislation that all passed, which were all reactions to the changing diversity within uh, the state. But we're th- we've gone through that now and California has a overall very progressive majority able to, You know, I think Biden won by like 30 points here in California, mm-hmm. Republican hasn't won statewide in 20 years. And so, on the one hand, we are through that initial fight to say that, yes, this should be a multiracial democracy, but then we're facing the next level of challenges now. And so we were, like, we still, even under election of Biden, when we did not pass a ballot measure around um, institutionalizing affirmative action in California, and then now there's a lot of controversy in Los Angeles where there's tensions between Latinos and African-Americans about who's going to have, which group is going to have more power. So- The challenges of building multiracial unity are some of the things that we're confronting in California. But I do highlight the San Diego experience, I think as a real model and example, people from African-Americans and Latinos doing civic engagement work to change the composition of that uh, electorate, electing many more progressive people, passing progressive policies, moving more money um, to uh, uh, social services and more socially progressive endeavors is an example of what we should be doing. But I think what California reflects is kind of this next level of challenge once you make some of these original breakthroughs. Thank you for responding like that. Sometimes,
0: I, you know, I, I, was, I was born in an inner city, you know, six sisters, two brothers, uh, father was a truck driver, third grade education. So uh, shotgun house, one two-bedroom shotgun house. So that's where I was born. And so it's a lot of people perceive people where I was born like them, not us. And so that, to me, is always champions the, 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 the inability to unite in communication. First of all, you know, you, you know, you section off who you don't want to be associated with and they look just like you. And then you worry about your crab in the barrel moment. I'm just trying to hold on to me. And so you start sectioning with a group of people who really don't care about you, but need your participation so they can have power. And so that was a signal that I, I read from your book in the sense of, I live in the state of Georgia, which flipped. And now it's trying to flip back. And I tell you right now, Steve, watching television is horrible. Mm-hmm. It is the, the, the you know, Herschel Walker, his wife, talking about, you know, putting a gun to his head. He's a liar. You know, you, you think back to Donald Trump. He was talking about grabbing women's private areas. Somehow it's like, Oh, that's what he did in the past that's not him today what shifted <laughs> that when when moral content conduct didn't matter anymore in politics
2: well this is the point that I I was you know trying to make around they're not playing by the same set of rules and so if we were all in the same society and the same social contract and the same Constitution there would be some level of Morality and shame and, and 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 consequence, but that's not what we're doing. And that's one of the most dangerous things of what Trump discovered, is that he could get away with anything, so long as he was seen as the champion of white people. And that I did, recently wrote a, a column about this in terms and for the Guardian in terms of uh, Trump was polling at four percent in the polls before he got into the presidential race back in May of two thousand fifteen. When he started attacking Mexicans and starting sending the signal that he was going to be the champion and the defender of white people, he zoomed up in the polls. right. And he became the front runner within a, a month and obviously never looked back. And so what and then, so he consistently found that the rules did not apply. And as long as the only rule was he continued championing whiteness, including a in national election, where all 50 governors say you lost, you don't have to listen to that either. And so, Herschel Walker is then his recruit in finding, again, somebody who has absolutely zero qualifications to be in any kind of elected office, let alone the United States Senate, but because he's the champion of the Trump wing of the country, they overlook everything. Right. And that's one of the fundamental messages. I think that be, that is a reflection of the fact that we are, in fact, in a civil war. They're engaged in a civil war where there are no rules of matter except can they actually get power advance their objectives. Wow. I'm speaking to Steve Phillips, New York Times bestselling author of Brown
0: is the New White. We're on the show today talking about how we can win the civil war, securing a multiracial democracy and an Indian white supremacy for good. Um, I, I wish we could do that. I think that ending white supremacy is so good because we don't, back in the day, they were hoods back in the day and they still do it, but there's but another group of white supremacists who um, control social media who drove banks? Who, who've always done it, but blatantly doing it, and and with social media, kind of like flaunting it. We all know that through social media, one can say that that's how Donald Trump won his electorate. And I think that when you talk about the moment of Donald Trump and the and the whole Mexican migration to the Texas, it was when he flew down in a helicopter, landed, and pointed, "This is where I'm gonna build a wall." When he right. said that moment, that was one of the great moments of, of of marketing. And that's when you know what you cannot take away from Donald Trump. He's a marketing genius. And he went to marketing instead of running. He said, I'm going to play on those different people. Now I want to switch to another more recent person who made a statement. And I had a major debate with a friend of mine, Stephen A. Smith. And he said that this moment that you talk about, President Biden says that we're in a battle for the soul of the nation, Biden specifically named and called out Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans as the ones attacking our democracy. This was an important step in the right direction. I agree. I was excited that uh, President Biden did that. He totally, being Stephen A. Smith, totally disagreed. I felt it was time for the... The Democratic Party, to acknowledge there's a problem, racism exists. I feel they've always sat on the sat on the sideline going, oh, wow, well, it's me, it's all good, we can all get along. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I think feel, I feel what Biden did was absolutely uh, correct and necessary and also not even going far enough. Right. Yes. So the introduction to the uh, title of my book is titled a choice between democracy and whiteness. Yes. yes. And that, that is drawn from a phrase that Taylor uh, Taylor Branch, the author of the Party in uh, the Waters series, said in reflection about the rise of white domestic terrorism during the Trump administration. And he says, the people would not stand for becoming a minority in their own country. The real question is, offered a choice between democracy and whiteness, how many would choose whiteness? And so it's very clear that Donald Trump And uh, Tanasey Coates has written eloquently about this in the the Atlantic is that the essence of Trump's power is whiteness. And this is, and he continually displayed it throughout his administration, defending the Confederates, talking about, uh, you know, people of uh, Congress with women of colors go back where they came from, et cetera. And so the, the country had a choice on January 6th between democracy and whiteness, and, and many people stormed the Capitol to stop democracy. And they stormed the Capitol to put in place this champion of white people. And that the majority of Republicans mm. in the in the Congress actually supported that. And the vast majority of Republicans in the country support that. That's, so that's what uh, uh, President Biden was talking about, was this grouping of people who did not subscribe to the Constitution. And we ha- and that is the battle for the soul of the nation. Are we going to be a white country? Are we going to be a multiracial nation? And it needs to be both called out and engaged. And the irony is that the way to maximize white support in this battle to make America a multiracial country is to challenge and summon them to stand on the side of multiracial democracy. And there have always been progressive whites who have been there throughout the years. right. Um, But they've been a minority. I call it meaningful minority. But that's that's what Obama did. When Obama gave his race speech in April April 2008, where he said that racism is a real thing and it's an ongoing present piece, but then he challenged and inspired people to step up and to try to overcome it. And I feel like that's what President Biden was trying to do. And he's, I think, positioned to do it as a white person. But I definitely think that that is uh, where we are at in this country.
4: We'll be right back with more Money-Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashan McDonald. Now let's return to Money-Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashan McDonald.
0: Well, you know, interesting, you, um, in your book, you said the Civil War never ended. And I agree with that because I'm not comfortable with being black in this country. I'm not comfortable being a person of color in this country. I'm not comfortable with a police person stopping me in this country. I'm not comfortable um just just mingling with white people or walking with a white woman and somebody thinking we're dating in this country. Um, so how do you so you know I we like to see, you know, white supremacy in but when can one start getting comfortable? I was ask you the question, Steve. You know, when do you want transition to the fact that they are not being judged by the color of their skin? Because we do every day, as you know yourself, you're judged by the color of your skin. How do we get past that as a race?
2: Well, that there's levels to it. And and, and Dr. King used to talk about that yes, sir. you can't legislate um, attitudes, but you can legislate behavior. And so I think that's the initial standpoint, so is really being able to build a multiracial majority that can take governing power and can create institutions which govern in the interest of the actual multiracial majority, that we have police forces that are about public safety for people of all races and not about confining and attacking Black people that have schools that are about educating all children of all races about the realities of this country and not whitewashing history. So when we get the positions of power through this multiracial majority, then governing in the interest of the society, it's probably what, so Obama won. Obama had very little support from uh, Republicans and a minority support from whites, but he passed a care bill, which benefited everybody. Yes. And so that I feel is a lot of what the, the way forward is. And then if we do in fact um, also lean into the education uh, uh, system and the edu- content of the education, so people understand the true nature of the history and the challenges we face in this country, all polls so that younger people are in fact, more progressive by and large around these types of issues. And that they're more diverse. The majority of people under 18 are people of color. And so that Bodes well, but in the in this particular moment, we have to really engage to orient our society towards that population, which is a big part of why I was glad they did the debt relief piece for the student uh, student loan part, because that's a key population within this country that is, offers great hope for the future. Well, you know the thing about it is that when you talk about white percent
0: white supremacy, which they control the media, when the uh, you know the Obama passed the you know, the medical relief program, it became the Obama healthcare program, which means that the white supremacists made it a racial issue. They made it seem like it was a black people were the only people benefiting from this. When the welfare program has always been seen as a program that only benefit minority or black people, as white supremacy working the working the working the, the behind the scenes on that, not not acknowledging that it benefits the entire country. It seems that whenever there are programs that benefit all, the white percent white supremacy organizations are working in the background to say, yeah, but we won't tell everybody that. Just make it just pro black. Just make right. the, let's make the Obamacare just pro-black. In fact, we're going to put Obamacare, we're going to put the name Obama attached to it to make it really sound black. And then welfare system, let's make it black. So all these programs that get out there, you know, they have a good way, I'm talking about the white supremacists that we're trying to end, have a good way of flipping the script and making it black. That is a hard problem to overcome when they have that much power.
2: Well, that's the battle that we're in that we're in this moment we're in a, a existential fight over is this going to be a white country or a multi-racial country right. are we going to which direction are we going to go we had the first black president yes sir that was then followed by one of the most pro white nationalist presidents that we've had in, in in a long time he was fortunately ousted so what direction are we going to go in and that's the battle of this moment that's really going to be the battle of the 2020s is that can we in fact enshrine this multiracial majority that exists in the country, but doesn't yet necessarily have governing and political power. And that's why I wrote this book, to try to send this message that that we are in this fight, but we also have ways to win, that we are in fact the majority and we are winning in places like Harris County, like Georgia, like Arizona. And if we look to those lessons and those leaders, people like Stacey Abrams, then we'll be able to make the type of progress we need to be able
0: to win this fight, let me. I'm, I'm gonna hold that. Stacey throw I'm talking to Steve Phillips. How we win the Civil War. His book is incredible. I'm reading him, interviewing him on the show about this book. Stacey Avery, If Stacey Avon, because this interview will air prior to the uh, midterm elections. If Stacey Avery loses, are we have we lost in your mission to end the Civil War, or to end a win the Civil War, or to end white supremacy? If she loses.
2: No, because this is a long-term struggle. And so that uh, we've been engaged in it's taken all of these different levels and that we didn't have the right to vote. We didn't have the right to walk the streets free. And so Stacey's is the latest battle in this really 400-year struggle for us to have uh, democracy and freedom within this country. And she is all, in many ways, Stacey has already won through the work that she did to transform the electorate that won the state for Biden and that elected Warnock and Ossoff and transformed the composition of the entire United States Senate and the United States Congress. That's Stacey's work. Yes. And so that work goes on regardless of what the specific results are um, this coming November in that she is clearly one of the brightest, most courageous leaders that exists within the country, and she will continue to lead and continue to help us make progress, whatever happens in November. It's been said,
0: uh, Steve, that we are a two-party country, Republican and Democrat. You know, you got the independents out there and the libertarians, but they don't really have power. All they do is kind of like come in and make noise. They said that because we have a two-party country, we are a two-party country, Republican, that's the problem. That's the problem. You know, we make promises that we don't commit, especially the Democrats. They have made promises after promises to black people, and then they kind of like rescind those so they can hold on to the white vote. Is a two-party system a major default in what you're trying to achieve and
2: winning the Civil War? I don't think it's the party issue in that I mean, my political baptism was in the Rainbow Coalition days, Jesse Jackson's campaigns. Yes, sir where he was working in the context of the Democratic Party. But I think that's a greater reflection of what the coalition should be, this rainbow coalition idea about people of color and progressive whites. When the old minorities come together, they comprise a new majority and can manifest that through whatever or whichever political party man- uh, uh, exists. So it's not fundamentally party as much as vision of of what the country is. There is a party which thinks this is primarily a white country. And there's a party that thinks this is primarily a multiracial country, but I would argue they don't lean enough into that, which Mm -hmm. is what what my work Mm -hmm. has been. But I think that there is the greatest potential there and the current structure uh, allows us the, the possibility to transform this country. And I don't think that's the party structure that's holding us back. It's participating in the electoral process where we still have millions of people of color who are not voting. and In fact, if and when we do, that's when we can have the greatest changes. Absolutely. That's what got <laughs> President Obama in office,
0: was when we all stepped to the plate. And also President Biden got him in office, yeah. especially when he named uh, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris as his running mate. And so, so those moments of, you know, like I said, you know, we see um, the way they— they alter voting laws, how they alter um, voting uh, redistricting. All these things are done when you have power. When we talk about ending the Civil War, I talk about my color, I talk about my child's color, as she lives this life beyond there. If you had to say a couple of things, and you say this in your book, and my goal is, when I do influential authors like that is not to give away your book, I want them to buy your book. So I would like for the author to put in the words that would allow people to understand what you're trying to say. Are we talking about 100 years from now? Are we talking about 200 years from now that we have to live in this horrible life of uncertainty where your color does matter, especially in racial situations? How does one win the Civil War? Is it certain pockets like in San Diego, other other identifiable cities that are understanding the value of racial harmony wins for everybody? How? What is that timeline, sir?
2: I really believe that the 2020s are in fact the key area in terms of what we're actually facing and that this next four to five years are going to be critical. And in that, can we continue the progress in places like Texas, Georgia, Arizona? Can we continue to flip places like Florida, North Carolina, which are in fact possible? And if we do that, then we will in fact be able to be far along on the road towards winning the civil war. Well, at one point uh,
0: this country was 90% white. Now I think that number is down to 60%. So that only encourages white supremacists to say, we have to save ourselves. We have to protect our rights. We have to carry our guns. We have to throw, as they say, not only fear mongers, but white mongers. They're holding on to their place in line. And so as that number keeps shrinking, I honestly believe this is my thoughts: is that if something negative were to happen from a standpoint legally for Trump, he would only add more fuel to the fire. I really believe that he could lead this country down a path of violence. Am I overreacting to that, Steve? Or you said, Rashawn? I hold my breath because you may be
2: right. No, they, well, we already had; they already happened. That they they stormed the United States Capitol, attacked uh, law enforcement officers. Um, multiple people died, and so and then Trump was you know quite pleased with all of that. So there's a, absolutely that that potential exists. But again, if we participate, if we run, uh, if we vote, if we win, if we get control of our societal institutions, then we can enforce the laws. We can enforce equality in ways that will. Uh, move us forward.
0: Well, you know, though, it's always like when you read a great book, Steve, uh, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. That means I got to go get the other book, Brown is the New White, another one of your bestsellers. I want to thank you for coming on Money Making Conversations. I'm going to tell you, Steve, I do these interviews all the time. It feels like I've only been talking to you for five minutes. We're at 26 minutes and counting, and this is not only your book is a brilliant read, but the the information that we are talking about is so riveting that it, the the time just flies. And I hope that we are able to create change with books like this. And I do believe what you're saying. And this the time is now for us to start changing. The time is now for us to be honest. And it only happens when authors like you, writers like you, write honest books. Thank you for writing this book, and thank you for coming on Money Making Conversation Masterclass.
2: Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
0: I appreciate you. If you want to hear or see any of my interviews, please go to moneymakingconversation.com. I'm Rashawn McDonald. I am your host.
4: You've been listening to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rushan McDonald. Always remember to lead with your gifts. Money Making Conversations Masterclass is a presentation of 3815 Media Incorporated. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald.
0: Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money Making Conversation Masterclass with your daily Minute of Inspiration. Recently, I spoke with two-time Emmy-nominated actor, producer, comedian, youth pastor, and author of Blessed Mode, Kel Mitchell. He addresses the importance of following a path of righteousness and always leading with love. Righteousness is just really being obedient to God and and thinking uh, in a way he thinks, responding in love. And a lot of times that's, a, that's hard for people. I mean, you know, it was hard for me. You know, yes. it wasn't just easy all of a sudden. I just I just got it. You know what I mean? I used to respond like, hey, you do me wrong, I do you wrong. Right, okay, right. revenge. You know right. what I mean? But now <laughs> it's the thing of it's like, no, respond to love because love kills all that all that craziness. You might be on one path and you'll go through something. That's the time where you need to learn from it. Listen to this full interview with Kel Mitchell. It's available on moneymakingconversations.com.